Hello, friend, and welcome back to another episode of the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast, or welcome if this is your first time joining in. My name is Mallory Page. I am your host, and I'm also the creator of this podcast, and I am also currently readjusting my mic. And as I'm looking at it, it has a lot of cat hair on it, which is kind of gross. So going to have to recover from that because I need to give you a little intro to the podcast if you've never been here before or if you just want a quick reminder. This is a space where we discuss nutrition, wellness, fitness, current events, ED recovery, and more from a non-diet lens that is research-backed. So I'm a registered dietitian and I operate from this non-diet lens, but I also understand that as a logical person, You want the actual factual information on things. Actual factual, little rhyme sequence. At least I know I always do. And so I felt like we get a lot of the diet culture-y based information when we are scrolling through social media, watching TV, even talking with people because diet culture is mainly what informs our culture. But we don't get a lot of the non-diet based information and research. And so I wanted to be able to do exactly that on this podcast. And my goal is that you have this other perspective so that you can decide how you want to view things and how you ultimately want to implement them or not implement them into your life. So if that sounds like something that is up your alley, then you are in the right place. And I am so grateful to have you here. And I'm really excited for this episode. I feel like I say that all the time, but I do genuinely get excited for most of the episodes. But this episode in particular is one I've never done before because I'm actually going to be talking about the book I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. And I've never discussed a book for a whole episode on the podcast, but it only feels right that this book would be the one to start the trend because it's just so perfect as a point of discussion for this podcast. So I'm going to get into explaining you know, what the book is about on a brief level. And we'll then talk some about the main takeaways. And I will follow that by going through and discussing the diet culture, eating disorder, body image related pieces of the book that I really want to touch on and have discussion around because there is some really interesting points we can take away here. But before I do that, I want to give a little backstory on how I ended up consuming this book and my journey with it because I have been aware of this book for so long since it first came out. It has been on my Goodreads and I've been super enticed by it and intrigued. I mean, I'm someone that watched iCarly, right? So there's that first piece of it, which if you've read the book, I'm not pinning her to iCarly. I'm just saying I think a lot of people at first are interested because of the fact that she was a part of their childhood. I mean, I watched Nickelodeon and iCarly so often. But then I also had this interest in her story around her eating disorder as someone that works with people that deal with eating disorders, that struggle with their relationship with food and body image. I'm always really fascinated by memoirs that cover this topic, especially to see how they do it. You know, how 
intimately do we know the details of their eating disorder? How is it displayed throughout the period of time in their life? And I just wanted to be able to explore what that was like within this memoir. So I kept putting it off and putting it off for some reason. I think because I was just in my kind of like simple book era and I wasn't really getting as much into memoirs. I felt like my life was just heavier. And so the idea of reading a heavier memoir felt like a lot. But I was driving from Austin, Texas to Colorado because we recently just moved and my partner was driving a U-Haul and then I was driving his car. Well, he was actually driving a U-Haul with my car, my little (laughs) go-kart. I had this like little Nissan Versa note and that was on a trailer behind the U-Haul and then I was driving behind him in his car that had the animals and some of our other stuff. And so I needed to find a book and Spotify just started doing audiobooks. I'm like, oh, let's listen to this. She reads it and narrates the, the audiobook. So I dove into this and automatically I was hooked. I mean, the book to me is incredible. I don't usually rate memoirs because I think it's kind of strange to cast judgment on someone's experiences that they personally have, especially if those experiences are quite traumatic. But to me, this is a five-star book. It was one of the best books that I read in 2023, and I truly loved every single moment of the book. And then I got my partner, Brian, to listen to the book after I listened to it. And he had a similar reaction, despite the fact that he's never struggled with an eating disorder, has no relation to these things, doesn't really relate to the traumas at all that were experienced, and is a man as well that's a little bit older. So like he watched iCarly, but wasn't as invested in her whole story. So I just think this speaks to how well done the book is in general. And yet, if you've read this book you also know that it is an extremely uncomfortable experience throughout the entire novel. And I want to give a huge disclaimer and trigger warning here. This is one of the most in-depth tellings of an eating disorder that I have ever personally read. If you are still dealing with your eating disorder, if you still have issues around body image, even if you just do not like to read very visceral accounts of an eating disorder, you do not want to read this book. It can't be avoided in reading it. It is not just one section. It is the book. So do not read this. And hopefully you can come back to it at another time if you feel like it is meant for you. And for me, this book was so emotional because there are a lot of things along her journey that I relate to, not to the same extent as to what she went through, and I'm not trying to bring myself into this to talk about me, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I just so understood the thought processes and the way that she depicted them in such an understandable way, even for people that don't relate to them, is so extremely powerful. And so I felt like I was going through this roller coaster experience as I was listening to this book over our first stint of the road trip. And it kind of put me into a book hangover afterwards too, because I just knew nothing 
was going to be able to top the experience that I had reading this book. But as someone now that has recovered from an eating disorder and is also healed from various different traumas, I found myself listening to pieces of this book and wanting to tear my hair out. Some of the accounts of what her experience were experiences were with getting support were extremely hard to hear, and I'll talk more about that in a latter part of this episode. Some of the things that were said to her in the environment around her were so just in they just made me enraged. And ultimately it showed me this cycle that occurs for so many of us that have dealt with eating disorders that is discussed, but to me it's not discussed enough. And that's exactly why I want to make this episode and to share some commentary on it. So in saying that, I do just want to give the disclaimer that I will be spoiling the eating disorder piece of this novel. So if you want to read this and you want to be completely surprised and go into it without any knowledge, this isn't the episode for you because I am going to be discussing the novel more in depth. But I'm not going to be unveiling every single piece of what happened in the novel itself. So if you want no spoilers, this is the time to click out. And for everybody else that's along for the ride, I'm just going to read a quick about the book to remind all of us what the description of it is. A heartbreaking and hilarious memoir by iCarly and Salmon Cat star Jeanette McCurdy about her struggles as a former child actor, including eating disorders, addiction, and a complicated relationship with her overbearing mother, and how she retook control of her life. Jeanette McCurdy was six years old when she had her first acting audition. Her mother's dream was for her only daughter to become a star, and Jeanette would do anything to make her mother happy. So she went along with what her mom called calorie restriction, eating little and weighing herself five times a day. She endured extensive at-home makeovers while her mom chided, Your eyelashes are invisible, okay? You think Dakota Fanning doesn't tint hers? She even showered by mom until she was even showered by mom until age 16 while sharing her diaries, emails, and all of her income. And I'm glad my mom died. Jeanette recounts all this in unflinching detail, just as she chronicles what's happened happens when the dream finally comes true. Cast in a new Nickelodeon series called iCarly, she is thrust into fame. Though mom is ecstatic, emailing fan club moderators and getting on a first-name basis with paparazzi, Jeanette is riddled with shame, anxiety, and self-loathing, which manifests into eating disorders, addiction, and a series of unhealthy relationships. These issues only get worse when soon after taking the lead in the iCarly spinoff, Sam and Cat, alongside Ariana Grande, her mother dies of cancer. Finally, after discovering therapy and quitting acting, Jeanette embarks on recovery and decides for the first time in her life what she really wants. So that does kind of depict pretty well some of the trajectory of the novel itself. And I really want to start from the beginning. I feel like there is this thing that people that have dealt with disordered eating or eating disorders or that work with them have which is almost this internal radar of when someone else is struggling with food, body image, exercise, 
And of course, I keep these things to myself, but it feels like it's something that I can't turn off. And this was the exact experience I had within the first few pages of this novel. Now, going back, if you don't remember, the first few pages involve Jeanette being in the hospital when her mother is dying of cancer for her second time. And even though a few pages in, she does depict this kind of story of how she knows that if there's one thing that could wake her mom up, it would be telling her what weight she was at. I could tell within the first page that her mom had an eating disorder. And I think that's just so telling how Jeanette in and of it, like Jeanette, I feel like did that purposely in a way. And yet also the eating disorder was so ingrained in who her mom was, how her body looked, how she presented herself, that what was important to her, that it was just kind of her being in and of itself. And so that piece of the story to me already gave us this insight to how integral the eating disorder was going to be in her life. And as we transitioned from this first hospital scene into her childhood and upbringing, we don't hear a ton about the eating disorder until a little later when we get to that point where her mom shares with her the quote-unquote calorie restriction. But to me, the depiction of how the eating disorder starts and the buildup to it is being displayed to us in this entire first section without there even needing to be a discussion around eating disorders. Because what she is experiencing at such a young age with having to monitor everyone around her, especially in terms of their emotions, and most specifically, her mother's emotions, already sets up the environment for someone that has to exhibit such high levels of hypervigilance, have such extreme levels of control, that has to take on so much responsibility and stress that they are not meant to take on as a child. And when you see someone that deals with that type of trauma at such a young age, it sets them up to have to find some type of way to cope because they're not being taught ways to cope. I mean, the examples that are being demonstrated to them without speculating too heavily are avoidance, which is what her father did, just completely avoid the emotion, avoid the circumstance, avoid the confrontation, avoid, 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 and then a clear disorganized attachment from her mother that converge on anxious attachment to avoidant attachment to everything in between and can be flipped between extremely rapidly. And there's no space for emotions. There's no space for being herself. There's no space to have her own thoughts. And even her own internal internal experience is negative. And she, she learns that her own internal experience isn't wanted. She doesn't need to have her own opinion. opinion. She doesn't need to have her own emotions. And then we see 
Uh, also, can you guys hear my dog snoring? Hold on. Milo. Oh my gosh. So loud. Um, what was I saying? Okay. We, we see that the OCD voice, when it comes in, also has the perfect environment to really take control because it's so comforting to have something internal within herself that can tell her what to do, that can give her this sense of control, of this sense of routine. And so this whole first section is so powerful in describing the experience that many people have that don't Not that it just has to lead to eating disorders, but it leads to some type of coping that is going to have to be worked through. And many people I've worked with and also myself, I I relate to this type of experience in my own ways and in that lack of awareness of your own internal environment and how that can then manifest. So then when we get to this period in time where the calorie restriction comes up, which is a time where she is already under just absurd amounts of stress for her age. She doesn't have socialization really to an extent that is normal for someone her age. She's kept almost childlike in a way to a point that is not normal, you know, like her mom really still taking so much control in her showering and in her care habits for herself and yet is also being made into an adult by having these beauty rituals and this workload that is completely unrealistic and also the role within her uh, family dynamic that is is more adult-like and completely unrealistic. It makes so much sense that when she has an experience of getting boobs, for example, or she feels worried that she gets boobs, that her mom's opinion or her mom's suggestion of calorie restriction is going to be taken as complete fact and not question in the slightest. And by complete fact, I feel like that's not the right word. I think I just mean that she, her mom expertly, whether it be on purpose or not, set up an environment of which she had full trust and was able to abuse that trust and manipulate that trust extremely easily. And for someone like her mother, that the eating disorder that she had was so integral to her very being, being able to share something like that, no matter how messed up it is, is like the ultimate connector. And we know that there is a large genetic component that can be at play for eating disorders. And we know how easily that whole generational trees can have continual eating disorder behaviors. And a piece of that is the genetics, and a piece of that can be behavioral, especially for someone that is unhealed there are ways that their behaviors are so quickly transferred to their children. And this is a unique example where the 
parental figure doesn't just unintentionally transfer it, they intentionally transfer it. And then when we see the calorie restriction start, it's very important to note the mindset that's going on. Because for someone that is so hypervigilant, like Jeanette, and exhibits such high levels of control around pretty much everything in her life and has to be so in control of herself, something like calorie restriction is simple. And it almost just feels like an extension of all of the other controls that they already have to do. And I think that's well exhibited in how she explains it. You know, she she just kind of falls into that pattern. It's not like she's sitting there thinking, oh, this is so horrible. She just feels like it's an extension of what she has to do, which obviously showcases to us how unhealthy the environment was around food in general, that something like this could so easily be something that is is just moved into. And the things that she was doing at such a young age with the scale and with food are so painful and sad to read. And it's, it is really hard to hear about a dynamic between a mother and daughter like that and to hear those scenes where parents of other children tried to show care and concern and the doctor showed concern and they discussed the topic of anorexia and it was just completely pushed away and just ignored. And so at this stage with the calorie restriction, I just think it's important to note how the viewpoint of it from Jeanette's end was almost that it was quote-unquote healthy. I can't find the right word for this as I was, I was brainstorming for this episode. It's just what she's doing, right? It's not requiring much thought. It's not something that she consciously knows is unhealthy. She's just kind of in that path. And this is very important to note as we discuss the way that eating disorders can cycle for this type of, of person. So this kind of continues on for a while and we see some interesting dynamics as Jeanette moves into fame and also moves into having other people that are more intimately in her life when she is on iCarly. And the deceitfulness of some of these scenes or I don't even think deceitfulness is right. I guess what I should say is I was extremely intrigued by the changes that occurred when Jeanette rose into more fame. And I would just love to be able to know psychologically what was occurring there with her mom deciding to allow her to eat more. And I wonder if that did relate to what Jeanette thought, where it was that, you know... Um, Miranda and her other co-star were both eating and she wanted it to seem normal and maybe she thought that they would catch on if she didn't. Maybe it was that she had this fame and so it felt like she was rewarded with this. It doesn't really matter but I do think 
that was interesting. And I feel like it's important, again, to make note of the fact that at first, Jeanette was very happy with these changes, right? She was like, yeah, I was eating these things and it was great. And that shows, again, that at the first stage of this calorie restriction, it wasn't so much about doing it to look a certain way. There wasn't quite an attachment to it. It hadn't taken so much stock yet in her life. And yet then we have this transition point. And to me, this transition point where the eating disorder becomes something that she more actively utilizes and becomes attached to doesn't just relate to one thing. It really relates to many things building up over time to create a breaking point. In the novel, she talks about how around the age of 15, the show started to get really popular and she had a lot of stress and this feeling of having to be on all the time. Plus, she didn't even enjoy acting at all. And so then when that happened, she became so much more fixated on food in her body and she started to monitor every bite she took and exercise obsessively and measure herself. And it was no longer just her mom that was doing it and she was no longer just doing it for her mom. And she also wasn't as detached from it anymore. It wasn't something where she just kind of was doing it because she thought it was what was right to do. We have that line where she essentially says, like, I know what I'm going to do. No more 2% milk anymore. And it shows us this transition point. And I'm hitting on this so often because this is so important in Most people that have an eating disorder or a disordered eating story, I shouldn't say most, many people have this type of transition point where they're doing these habits and they don't feel that negative and they feel even easy and they feel like something that they're in control of and then they double down on the control and they still feel in control of it, but it's more important. It feels different. The eating disorder, the habits, they become something that you you're more attached to and so that desire to have that control signifies a change in the level of stress that she was depicting or that she was experiencing I should say and it also it depicts the way that an eating disorder moves into a coping mechanism for the emotional distress or stress that is being experienced. And it's so important to make note of how significant this can be for someone that has had to monitor their emotional experience and even felt shame around their own emotions and their own thoughts for their whole life. Having an outlet that is physically present that brings you control, but also in turn is serving as a way to suppress emotions or to deal with them, which isn't really dealing with them because they're not being worked through, that also connects to something that is physically seen is, it is, it's hard to depict how powerful this is. And I'm not trying to say that that's what it was exactly for Jeanette. I feel like she explains some of how it served her in this and talks about the the role of how it regulated her emotions. 
but I just can't hit on that point enough. And as we move through the rest of the novel, we see how for a long amount of time, she exhibits this level of control. And in some spaces around eating disorders, there is kind of this name of the honeymoon phase for this time of specifically anorexia, but even of disordered eating where it kind of feels like everything is working out. You know, it's not hard to only eat certain things or to do certain habits. You just can do it on autopilot. I know in my journey, I experienced this for, you know, I'm not going to say how long because I feel like some things can bring comparison, right? But I experienced this and it never felt to me like it was going to end. And it never felt like it was even that bad of a thing. It just felt like it was me. It was just a part of me and who I was. And so when we start to see this shift, it always comes in these small lapses of control. And at least when I say that, that's how it feels, right? It feels like a small lapse in control where you end up eating something that you normally wouldn't or doing something that you normally wouldn't. That's typically what the lapse of control is. And it's not actually a lapse in control. It is actually your body being so overridden by stress, so beaten down from emotional suppression, and so exhausted from not being able to cope in a way that is actually supportive that it almost cries out to a level where it can override these rules and systems and guidelines that you have in place. It's kind of like a breaking point. And yet most people that struggle with this type of mindset, they don't see it that way. They see it as a failure. They see it as that they are weak. They see it as, you know, that they should have done better, that there's something wrong with them. It's a whole negative thought process that's going on, even though really it's just the body crying for help, you know, begging to try to get better. And then when we have something that either builds over time, right? So let's just say you deal with stress after stress after stress after stress over and over and over again. You can then reach another type of breaking point. But that can also be triggered by a traumatic event or a combination of the two. So as we know, when Jeanette was 18 is when her mom was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. And as those of you that read the book know, there's, there's multiple other things that happen to her that are, are traumatic and super stressful and would be enough. But getting this diagnosis then was the thing that turned her from the anorexia kind of control mindset to the need for this release and for this comfort, which turned into the binging. And for those of you that have dealt with something where you go from more of this restriction basis to binging, 
you will know how emotionally disruptive and distressing this is. For those of you that haven't, I would describe it similarly to feeling like you are a swimmer and you are so good at swimming. You can hold your breath for four laps down and back and you're winning every single race and everybody's commending you and you feel like you're doing such a great job. And then all of a sudden, you're in the middle of a race and you start drowning. And it does it feels like you just can't stop drowning. Like you'll come up for a second and get a deep breath, but then you're drowning again. And you don't understand what happened. You feel like it just happened all of a sudden. Like all you were doing was swimming. You were doing your normal swimming that you always do, that you always win at, that everybody says you're good at. And then next thing you know, you can't you can't stop. And that's how I would depict this. And again, when from such a young age, you have been taught to disconnect from your internal environment, disconnect from your emotions, disconnect from your thoughts, even disconnect from the things that you are experiencing. You can't connect to the fact that this is occurring because of this stressful event. So for Jeanette, because of this cancer diagnosis. And I'm not saying that there's no awareness of it because most people that deal deal with eating disorders, there is definitely a level of self-awareness that they experience of self-understanding. But a lot of it is intellectualizing understanding that can actually be based in shame. So it's this level of awareness that isn't true understanding of ourselves. So it's, oh my gosh, you are so weak and you're like, I'm just going to use this example, but I don't want you guys to think I'm saying that this is what Jeanette was thinking exactly. Like you're so weak and because you're so weak, you have no ability to control yourself. And so you just keep going to binging and you should be so ashamed for yourself, ashamed of yourself. And just this is disgusting, right? It's it's all this hatred that it's disguising itself as self-awareness that like you know yourself, but you re- really, it's it's not knowing yourself. It's knowing this story that you believe you should have about yourself that has no empathy for what you're dealing with and no understanding that you've undergone all these traumatic things that have built and built and built and built. And it only makes sense that your body is saying, I can't do this anymore. I need a release. I need help. And and the feeling of a binge can be really, really powerful in not only bringing positive emotions in, you know, like having this time where you eat these things that that bring joy and comfort and happiness, but also in some ways they can feel like this release of pent-up emotions too. It depends on the person because sometimes a binge feels like more suppression and sometimes it feels like a release and there's no right or wrong with that. It just kind of depends on everyone's experience and I'm, I'm not going to assume what it is for Jeanette because she didn't exactly say I mean we kind of get some insight into this as her eating disorder transforms again but I just think that it's it's very important to make note of of how that shows up and and even though there are these positive emotions that come about from the binging in the moment 
ultimately it does just fuel the shame cycle. And so we know that even when she was in the binge eating phase, she still tracked, she calculated, she obsessed about every single thing she ate. It was just the same as when she had the anorexia, but she was eating more. And so it really sent her into that kind of toxic, self-loathing type of cycle. And oftentimes the hardest thing for people that deal with the binging addition to what was typically their anorexia is the fact that it changes their body. And that change in their body can be extremely uncomfortable and it can also be accompanied with a whole host of different challenges. So if I'm remembering correctly for Jeanette, there was actually a time period where she started binging and although her mom was commenting negatively on her body, other people were commenting positively on her body and how she looked more womanly and so she had all these unnecessary comments about the way that she looked. And then simultaneously, this whole time, her character and iCarly is obsessed with food, which I I can't even imagine how difficult that would be to play a character that has this food obsession when you can't even allow yourself to have those foods or when you do, it's a binging cycle. And I mean, that's just to have to imagine what that would be like, honestly. And you can see how when you were already in a state where you were extremely emotionally distressed, but you had a coping skill that was working that kept you in control. So in this case, the anorexia. And then you move into something that feels like it takes away your control and you can't get control of it because she tried to re-engage with anorexia, which is the typical cycle. Uh, it's it's like allow the binging to kind of happen, see what you can do. Sometimes people will kind of lean into it and then what happens is like they often people try to take back the control. So we, we saw some scenes of that where she was really trying to re-engage with that, but she didn't feel like she could do it anymore because her body, her nervous system, her her emotions, like she was tapped out. She was, she didn't have that. She didn't have it anymore. That emotional turmoil was too much, too distressful. And so when you are then dealing with such high levels of shame all the time, there has to be an outlet. One person can only deal with so much shame and so much just hatred for themselves. And so when we see this turning point to alcohol and eventually bulimia, which happen pretty closely together, honestly, it only makes sense because the alcohol serves as a time to be numb, a time to feel more confidence, a time to not have to deal with so much shame. And the bulimia serves as the release And it doesn't necessarily feel like control, but it feels like 
you know, just letting go of it all. And when it's so hard to deal with the emotions that you're experiencing, and when that is internally inside you and genuinely eating you up inside, again, we have to just understand the the empathy, or we have to have empathy for the fact that it can feel like there's no other option other than that release. And we see that really start to play out emotionally in how Jeanette ends up describing the way that bulimia serves her. We see multiple times where she'll get really distressful news or where she'll, where she'll feel really um, just not confident in herself or really down. And she specifically uses the bulimia as a release, even naming the emotions that she is experiencing that she wants to get rid of. And sometimes not even really naming the emotions, honestly, but expressing that she's like, oh, I can't deal with this right now. It's too much. And we also see how there are many times where a stressful event, especially related to family, maybe her grandma calling her, whatever it is, it can feel like it's that that re-triggering that occurs. And so that is such a hard space to be in. When your emotions are that distressful, it can feel like your body is just, it's foreign. And that's me speaking personally. And I will talk a little bit more about this in full conclusion, but I really want to name this cycle that we just talked about and the way that it shows up because this quote-unquote healthy restriction, which isn't actually healthy, but what I mean by that is kind of like detached restriction where you're able to do these things and it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's going to be that bad to this quote-unquote unhealthy restriction or attached restriction where you start to consciously use this as a means of control. You start to feel like it's, it's a big part of your life to then these lapses of control, these little moments where you start to, to lose it, that you feel almost confused between if they're positive and, or negative. Like you kind of have these emotions of, oh my gosh, like I'm letting myself eat these things or I'm, I'm having this stuff that I didn't used to have and, and kind of the excitement of that to if that is not then utilized as fuel for recovery, the binging to numbing through alcohol, through, I mean, whatever it is, there's a lot of numbing devices, to the expelling in some way or the purging in some way cycle is is massive. And of course, this can happen to anybody, but I see this happen the most in people with this very specific type of dissonance between their own body and their mind and overall a disconnect between their emotional experiences. Because when the eating disorder comes about as a way to suppress emotions and you become so distanced from yourself, potentially even dealing with dissociation, dealing with derealization, dealing with just 
so much suppression. It is such a hard hole, at least it can feel like, right? It can feel so hard to climb out of that because there is an acute awareness, even if it is subconscious, that you're not going to climb out just by dealing with only the habits. It's going to have to connect to all these emotions, to all the trauma. And that is scary. Because even if we don't know it consciously, like I'm saying, our body knows, we know subconsciously that it's going to require this whole host of things. And then as we transition from this space that Jeanette is in, where she's, you know, really actively in the worst throes of her addiction and eating disorders and all of that, we see what it can be like to try to get help. So she goes to this first therapist slash, I believe, life coach, which is already a combo that worries me a little bit when someone is dealing with an eating disorder. And I mean, I think, as I'm sure many of you are, I'm so excited for her in this moment as I'm listening. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so excited that she's going to therapy, even if it's because her boyfriend is making her go to therapy. I don't care. I'm just so happy that she's going and that she's going to have support. And then the first things that, that happens is this therapist hugging her and overall invading her personal space. I just, I am not trying to say that there can be no room for that type of behavior. And as you guys know, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm not a therapist. But as someone that understands counseling and ways to make clients feel comfortable It is not normal to have someone that you do not know that is meant to be a provider without consent just come up to you and hug you. And as we hear about this relationship, I am just sitting here thinking, how is this allowed? What type of therapy was this? First of all, I understand that there is 100% a chance that if Jeanette had been suggested to go to higher level of care, she would have said no. I totally get that. And maybe her therapist did suggest higher level of care, but she is technically a client that would be suitable for higher level of care. Now, I know she's working, so I'm not sure if they had an agreement. Like, I don't know how often she was going to therapy or what that was, but typically in a therapeutic relationship, If you were to, let's say, run into your therapist, your therapist cannot even approach you out unless you approach them. They will act as if they do not know you at all unless you say something. And they are definitely not typically going out to events with you or having such a heavy hand in your day-to-day life. I've been seeing this trend a lot even on TikTok of people showing all these messages of their texts with therapists that's really not a super normal therapeutic dynamic. And I see the benefits of the fact that having someone very intimately involved within your life and your recovery can be beneficial. I mean, going to a recovery treatment center, one of the benefits is that you're around people all the time, you have support, you have people that are always there. But there were just some really strange lines that I feel like were getting blurred with this relationship already 
that to me also seem very strange when you have someone that grew up in a codependent relationship with her mother, which I don't think the therapist knew this at that point necessarily, to then be almost placing yourself in a position where there is almost a sense of codependency that maybe isn't even consented upon from the the client's day, uh, the client's position. So all of that was kind of strange. But again, I don't know the full situation, right? Who knows what was agreed upon and what was wanted. But I also think we see such a breakdown in the tact of this therapist in the moment where Jeanette starts to share about her mom. I feel like potentially from an outsider perspective, someone could think, oh, well, you know, Jeanette just wasn't ready to heal or ready to hear that her mom was abusive. And so she just, you know, ran away. That is not how I saw it at all. I saw the beginnings of a therapeutic relationship where there was some trust building that could be had. And a client that was clearly very defensive, very unsure about sharing about a relationship that is very intimate to them, which is very common when someone is sharing about their family, sharing about people that were very significant in their lives. And there are many times where as a clinician, you will know that someone's relationship dynamic to their family member or to someone else is not healthy. But the whole role as a therapist or as a dietitian or as anyone that is helping to be in supportive care is to ensure that you are making the client feel safe. Yes, you want to push them, you want to uncover these things, but the role of the therapist, if this is what really, you know, like if we're wanting to make the client feel comfortable, would not be to hear about someone's mother for the first time and say they're abusive. You can't just be throwing around claims like that. And it was so hard to hear, and I can completely understand why Jeanette would have not wanted to continue in that moment. And so we see that relationship, which I understand why it didn't work out in and of itself. And then we transition to the second relationship. And I feel like it's very important to say, because it was kind of less somewhat ambiguous, that I don't want to say anything negative on this therapist or say that their work wasn't significant or that it's wrong. I have some different viewpoints that I personally want to share, but I can be respectful of the fact that if this is what worked for her, that's freaking amazing. It doesn't really matter how you get to recovery and different things are going to work for all people. But for any of you guys that may be listening that were curious about some of the things you heard, I think it's important to bring up because the second therapist that she went to that is making her weigh herself under the guise that it's important because this whole process is going to be difficult, that is just something that I so, so, so strongly disagree with. I I have no agreement with personally. When a, a client has undergone so much trauma, and even if a client has not, they have already done many uncomfortable things. We're not trying to get them to do even more uncomfortable things that are unnecessarily triggering and potentially traumatic. There are so many ways to monitor someone's progress and or to get someone's weight or to test these different things 
without making them go through a routine that is intentionally traumatic. And also if you're doing this in the beginning of a session, especially for a client that has the potential maybe to, and maybe this isn't Jeanette, but some clients that are less connected to their emotions, they have the potential to dissociate and to disconnect from themselves, especially if they're put into a situation that triggers their their fight or flight. And something traumatic like this, especially considering her upbringing of how she had to interact with the scale with her mother, is not the answer in my personal opinion. So please do not let someone tell you that. If you're not comfortable with that, that is completely fine and you do not have to do that. It seemed like there were some really positive things like the exercise of processing emotions while going through the process of eating a food or looking at a food. This is kind of like the exposure therapy idea. That can be really powerful. And I just also want to bring up that Even with exposure therapy and with goals, we have to go in steps and stages and make sure that there is appropriate emotional support because as I was mentioning, we can tell that the emotional piece of this eating disorder is the biggest one. She talks about this throughout this recovery process. And so, for example, when I work with clients in Live Unrestricted, which are not not dealing with the level of extremity that Jeanette was dealing with, so definitely in a different place. We are still always thinking about ensuring that the pace that we're going with the goals that we're setting and the things that we're challenging is realistic because of how it can be uncovering distressful emotional experiences. And we're also looking at coping mechanisms. How are we dealing with the emotions that are coming up to ensure that this is sustainable and that this isn't going to send them in a spiral or in a bad path? And I just think that some of those conversations are the ones that need to be had and the kind of pamphlets or just like one-liners that are shared can feel very revolutionary to the clinician. Like we can feel like we're saying something that's so life-changing, but what I find with most clients is that they're in such a level of kind of self-awareness based on shame that they already know both of most of those things. Like they already know, just like Jeanette was saying, that like the bulimia is making her really weak or really hurting her body. It's not about not knowing. They're like very, very smart and very understanding of themselves. It's being stuck in that place because of the paralyzing nature of such an what can feel like an insurmountable number of emotions that feel near impossible to work through because you weren't taught any coping mechanisms. You don't have any coping mechanisms. And now we're taking your coping mechanisms away. And if we don't add in other ways of coping, other things that bring you joy, then what is there to recover for? We have to have this this bigger picture of how all these things are interacting to keep the client safe. So that's why in my program, Live Unrestricted, we talk so much about the ways that coping interacts with these habits and then have a big emphasis on having things that bring in joy, that bring in comfort, that bring safety and making sure we go at a pace that is comfortable. And again, I'm Live Unrestricted isn't for the client that is in Jeanette's position, but everyone, no matter where they're at, still needs to have 
that level of care and understanding from the person that they are working with. Because when it comes to this type of eating disorder, we're not just working on healing the eating disorder. We're working on healing yourself. Because it's clear that these traumas, these emotions, they're all connected, right? They're all in this one like huge, like complicated wound up ball that it's like we're trying to unravel slowly but surely. And that's just, it's overwhelming. And I'm just overall so, so happy for Jeanette with the fact that she's in recovery maintenance and that she got there. And I want to make it very clear that even in my comments about the support that she got, I am in no way trying to invalidate if that was what was supportive for her. That is all that matters. We're not all the same. I more say this for the person that felt as they read that maybe confused or unsure if that is a requirement. Does that, is that something that has to be done? Is that something that has to be a part of my journey? And what I'm trying to say is that something doesn't resonate, then that doesn't mean you have to do it. Yes, there are things that will probably have to happen when you're healing from an eating disorder, but just because one person has a certain experience, it doesn't mean it has to be your experience or if one person heals a certain way, that doesn't mean you have to heal that certain way. That's why when I work with people in my program, Live Unrestricted, I always do consults with them to ensure that I really believe it's the right fit because if it's not the right fit and if they don't resonate with with kind of our journey in the style, I want to make sure that they can go into a route that does resonate with them. Because none of us are the same. We're all different. And we all need the type of support that feels supportive for us. Those were the main thoughts that I really wanted to cover within this book, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. I feel like I could talk about this book all day because it's just so powerful and it's so insightful and so candid and real. I would love to hear any thoughts that you had as you read this book or any thoughts that you had as you listened to this episode, things that you thought of about what she experienced that I missed, or just even if you want to have someone to talk through this stuff with, I am here. You can always shoot me a DM. You can also shoot me an email. There's always links below to submit those different options. And also, if you did hear about my program, Live Unrestricted, and it kind of sparked your interest, the information for that is also in the show notes. And to give you the quickest summary, it is my 12-week signature program designed to help the woman that is stuck in the in-between in her relationship with food, body image, and exercise reach an unrestricted life that has full freedom with food, exercise, and body image, whatever that looks like for her. Maybe it's that she no longer thinks about food and just feels neutral to it. Maybe it's the fact that she feels accepting of her body. Maybe it's the fact that 
she's no longer afraid of switching up her routine, but the whole focus is to find that way of living that feels best for you. And we do that through a very holistic approach of having specific personalized steps, having a group of support from people that are in a similar position to you, and also working through these different experiences that could have contributed. So again, that's in the show notes. And If you did enjoy this episode and you want to hear more book-based episodes, please let me know. I'm curious to hear if you guys like this or if you don't like it as much. And if you have any episode ideas you want to see from me, please feel free to submit them down below. Or if you feel inclined to rate or review the podcast, that would mean the world to me. But even if you just listen to this and this is the only episode you ever listened to, I'm so grateful and I'm glad that you are here and I look forward to hopefully seeing you another time. Bye.